Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters. I am Kim Kessler with the Resident Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. And on this show, we talk about the food policy issues that shape our everyday experiences of growing, buying, and eating food. We're broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we have a great program today. We are going to be talking about food safety, and specifically the Food Safety Modernization Act. This piece of legislation was signed into law in January of 2011 by President Obama, and it has been heralded by some as a major step forward for food safety and characterized by others as representing a major compromise with the food industry. And one of the groups that has been caught in the crosshairs of the legislation is smaller farmers who've been arguing against some of the more potentially onerous requirements under the legislation. So we are going to get to the bottom of all this today with an amazing group of experts to talk about food safety and the legislation. Let me introduce them. First, we have Dennis Stearns back on the program today. Dennis is a founding partner of Marlow Clark, which is a leading food safety law firm. Next, we have Brian Snyder. He's the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, which is one of the largest sustainable farming organizations in the country. We also have Ali Kondra, who is a senior clinical fellow at the Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic, and finally, Margo Pollins, who is my colleague and the teaching fellow at the Resident Program for Food, Law, and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Welcome to all of you. I'm so glad to have you all here. Calling in from all around the country, I should say. <laughs> great great so, to be here. Yeah, glad to participate. Great. Uh, so I want to start by just getting an understanding of food safety issues in general. And I, I have to say that I personally grew up uh, with a very no-nonsense Irish mother who paid no attention whatsoever to expiration dates and prided herself on eating street food all around the world. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a time when I've asked her, do you think this is safe to eat? And she has said no. Um, so to be honest, I have to say I had not given food safety a lot of thought until recently when we have started to see so many headlines about major food safety issues. So I first want to turn to you, Dennis, and just get some perspective. How big of a deal is food safety in the United States? It's a big deal, and it's been a big deal for a, a long time now. I, I started dealing with food issues back in 1993 in the Jack in the Box outbreak, which was sort of the seminal event that, that elevated issues of food safety. And, you know, over the years, I've in many respects thought that, oh, is it going to continue to be such a topic of, you know, media fascination and public concern? And to be frank, it's just it, the interest and the significance of it has never waned, I think in part simply because food safety has over that period of time, gotten better in some ways, but gotten a lot worse in a lot of other ways. So it, it, it remains a really big deal, I think. Can you describe what some of the most common issues are? Well, I think, you know, there you have to, in addressing this, you sort of have to separate into sort of three categories or clumps. There, research has shown a lot of foodborne illness 
is just never linked to anything. You know, we're talking about millions of cases a year of, you know, what sometimes is referred to as the stomach flu, et cetera. And we're pretty certain that that those things are caused by eating contaminated food or cross-contamination, et cetera. And that just kind of is background white noise. No one ever really figures out what is causing that illness. But it's a significant amount of illness um, from year to year. Then there's the illness that we sort of impose on ourselves through sloppy handling in our homes and that sort of thing. But when we talk about food safety as an issue and and, and, in terms of media attention, we're really talking about uh, foodborne illness outbreaks that are linked to um, manufactured food, things in you know that are actually part of commerce. These things that those are the things that end up on headlines, and and as a result of that, those are also the kinds of outbreaks that drive regulatory change, public concern, and all those other things. So I think when we talk about food safety, more or less, we're talking about foodborne illness outbreaks linked to food that's you know sold commercially, as opposed to prepared at home improperly. Exactly. And, and in terms of the gravity of this, I mean, when you look into it more, you understand that it's not, it's not necessarily just having a stomach ache, but this is sometimes people who ultimately die or have very disabling conditions. I mean, can, are there numbers you can share about uh, the gravity of some of these issues? Well, I think the numbers can be scary in terms of, you know, the, what the CDC says in terms of 5,000 deaths annually, and, and those we're talking about 5,000 deaths that, you know, are linked to outbreaks and that sort of thing. Again, we're not talking about the, the significant amount of death and injury that no one ever figures out what causes it. But I think in some respects the thing that makes the biggest impact is not talking about numbers that are like in the millions and thousands and the hundreds of thousands, but telling the stories of people, you know, I mean, one of the, the insights that I have into foodborne illness is because I've spent, you know, over 15 years representing people who were injured in foodborne illness outbreaks is to just see the heartbreak. I mean, just to give you an example of a, I was drafting a complaint just this last week on behalf of a family whose seven-year-old son died because he ate contaminated ground beef um, that was purchased at a store in the Boston area. Um, the parents were bu- buying grass-fed beef under the, the belief that it was safer to eat, and, you know, now their son is dead. And, you know, that's the kind of thing when I'm looking at that kind of situation that makes food safety to me more real and more impactful than when we talk about, you know, a million cases of um, gastroenteritis every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that is a good segue, I think, to the very monumental, arguably, legislation that was passed, the Food Safety Modernization Act. And I guess in terms of just broad strokes, Ali, I want to turn it over to you to to help us understand what is the Food Safety Modernization Act. Yeah, so you um, talked a little bit about it earlier. It was uh, signed into law in January 2011 and was the largest overhaul of our nation's food safety laws in over 70 years. So at the turn of the century, we had um, some initial legislation around food safety around the time that the jungle, the book The Jungle was published. But since then, largely we haven't had any major change. Um, in the years leading up to the Food Safety Modernization Act, there were a number of pretty large-scale foodborne illness outbreaks, which is, I think, what pushed Congress to finally come together and um, pass a law updating all of our food safety regulations. And in broad strokes, um, what it does is, add new regulations for food safety in a couple areas. 
so for a long time, uh, food safety or food facilities, those places that manufacture and process food, uh, were already subject to food safety regulations in terms of the way that they handle the food that they're making. So Congress updated those regulations and added some new things like the need to make a food safety plan uh, to identify places where there could be potential contamination. Uh, One of the things that we'll talk about a lot uh, is that Congress added some food safety regulations for farms. Uh, Farm food safety hadn't been regulated, those farms that are growing produce. Um, And so produce farms now are subject to a number of, of new food safety regulations. A couple other big important things that the Food Safety Modernization Act did was give the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, mandatory recall authority. So in the past, if there was a foodborne illness outbreak, the FDA couldn't require anybody to recall a food. They just had to ask. Um, So now Congress, or excuse me, the FDA can require a company to recall food if if there is an issue. Um, There are also other provisions about traceability to make sure that Food can be traced from, you know, hopefully its whole sort of span from where it's produced to where it ends up. Um, and then there are a number of inspections. The FDA is hoping that uh, increasing the inspections of food facilities and places like that will help prevent uh, foodborne illness outbreak. And I guess the last thing that I'll say about FISMA is that the, in- the purpose was to take our laws from being a very reactionary in terms of food safety, to being preventive. Um, they're trying to figure out how to stop things before they happen. So we'll see how it goes. It's a, it's a pretty significant piece of legislation now law, uh, and we're in the implementation period now, and it's, there are a lot of things that have to be worked out. And the way you describe it, Allie, I mean, it sounds, that broad overview, it sounds so common sense, uh, most of the things that, that you just said, and it is characterized generally in the, in the media. It's been characterized as a bill that was had a broad bipartisan support. I wanted to just get a little bit of perspective on, you know, who, what were the, um, who, what were the political dynamics? I mean, who was against this? Who really came to the table? And is it something that the Obama administration, should we say, should get a lot of credit for, or is this something that was kind of long overdue and? Um, really, it, it absolutely should have happened. I don't know if, if Dennis or um, Brian, if either of you have perspective on that. Well, I, I would just say briefly, because I'm interested in hearing what Brian has to say, too, that 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 I, I agree with what Ali said in terms of that the goal of FISMA is to move more towards a preventive than a reactive mode. But the irony is is that FISMA was very much a reaction to increasing foodborne illness and increasingly high-profile foodborne illness linked to produce and cookie dough and pot pies and a whole host of things that happened in, in the several years leading up to it. So, you know, whether or not it ends up actually being effectively preventive, a lot of it depends on whether or not it gets the funding necessary to work, and that's super uncertain. Um, so I tend to be kind of a FISMA skeptic. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's a really good point. The, the funding and then the, the sort of staff power in order to implement it. Um, so, but, but thinking about sort of FISMA's implementation, or not its implementation, but the, the discussions leading up to it, um, from what I remember, it, it took Congress a long time to actually get FISMA through. Um, both the House and the Senate went through a number of 
of revisions, and I think they took it up in 2009 a couple times. Um, so we'll talk about this, I think, in a little bit, but there was a lot of discussion about um, some exemptions for farmers and food entrepreneurs um, that sell primarily in local and regional markets. And I know we will talk about this, but I think that from my recollection of the process, um, that was where a lot of the controversy was um, around whether or not, you know, there should be any sort of scale appropriate or just acknowledgement of, of food safety, different food safety risks from different types and sizes and um, participants right. in the food system. Right. Uh, so I'm going to um, bring, bring Brian in to talk about that. Yep. So Brian, working as the executive director representing sustainable agriculture uh, farms and entities in Pennsylvania, when did this hit your radar screen, and, you know, what was the initial thinking around it? Well, it, it hit my radar screen pretty abruptly in early 2009. Um, uh, people may recall that just as President Obama was being inaugurated the first time, we were dealing with uh, a, a huge problem with uh, uh, peanuts and peanut butter uh, in the country, and, and, and uh, the new president took exception and, and uh, to to the problem there because uh, he, he talked about the fact that his daughters like to eat peanut butter and, and it needed to be safe and and that may not have been the whole reason why we suddenly had a lot of energy around uh, food safety legislation but it certainly was used uh, by those who wanted the legislation as a, as a reason to move it ahead and so pretty quickly in 2009 we were faced with the fact that uh, the legislation was supposedly going to come very fast. And, and of course, reality set in for the Obama administration and everybody else, finding that you can't do things quickly like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but uh, I was uh, uh, among the first, myself and my colleague at the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardens Association, Russell Libby, who has uh, since uh, passed away from um, cancer, uh, the two of us were the the first ones in Congress to um, uh, to meet with the the Commerce Committee in the House uh, uh, about the legislation that was moving through, and and we were a little worried when we went in, but we walked out of there sort of devastated at the extent to which they were not thinking about the impact on. Um, on farms, broadly speaking, not just small farms, but, you know, farms that are doing the right thing from our point of view in terms of reducing risk, and that is to keep the supply chain very short and and serving local and regional markets. Um, So we we knew we had an uphill climb and and got a lot of other people involved um, and and eventually had a big impact on the legislation. But it was uh, was quite a... uh, quite a cold shower to take there uh, that first time we went in and and met with Realized people who were driving. the amount of work we had to do, right. Yeah. So when we really... come back... Oh, so Margo, I want to go... I want to hear from you. Go ahead. Oh, so one of the other really interesting things about the development of the legislation was that the um, a lot of big players in the produce industry supported the legislation. So I think this is one of the reasons why it moved so quickly and why some of the concerns for um, regional food systems were not up at the forefront in the beginning. The, um, 
some of the, the bigger players in California were already subject to some private food safety regulations. So a lot of retailers were requiring growers to get audited from third-party certifiers. And um, so there was an interest from, from those groups, groups like the Leafy Green Growers Association in California, uh, in having uniform national regulations that would preempt potentially more stringent private regulations. And they wanted to level the playing field. They wanted all farmers to be subject to these requirements. So there was sort of an unusual coalition of some of the bigger industry players along with some of the consumer organizations that were concerned about the, the impact of illness who were supporting legislation. So I want to take a quick break and then come back and talk more about how those issues played out over the next now we're in the fifth year, um, and there's still, there's still a lot of things to be worked out. So we'll take a break, and we'll come back and talk about that more. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, everyone, and we're back. So, Margot and Allie, you both have worked actually representing farmers um, and doing some advocacy through the rulemaking process on FISMA, and particularly around the issues that were going to impact local and regional farmers. And I wanted to hear from you. First, um, Allie, maybe you can describe what's the procedural posture or where are we in this process right now uh, in terms of the advocacy that's gone on on behalf of the smaller scale farmers and then start to talk through what some of the implications could look like. Yes. Uh, so it's been quite an interesting process. Uh, so the FDA was tasked with passing some regulations to fill in the details from what Congress had put into the Food Safety Modernization Act. So two of of what I consider the really important, two important rules were proposed in January of 2013, um, and that had to do with the on-farm food safety and then updating the food facility food safety regulations. So we'll call them the produce safety rule and the preventive controls rule. And those two were proposed, as I said, in January, and um, it, the FDA had to give the public a certain amount of time to comment on them. and. Uh, to keep it short, the comment period was extended two times so that finally our first round of comments were due or our comments were due to the FDA in November of 2014, um, or 2013, excuse me. We're not in November yet. Um, and then in December of 2013, the FDA released a statement that said they would issue sort of revised language, a supplemental proposed rule in between because they had gotten so many comments on the rules, and they realized that they hadn't done things quite right, and they were going to try again and give us some more 
revised language that we could comment on again. So the revised language on those two rules was issued at the end of September. And so right now we are in another uh, comment period. We had from September, I think, 29th officially. Uh, we have until December 15th to write comments on this new language that FDA has released. Um, but the two rules have to be finalized in 2015. So by August 30th for one of them and October 31st, 2015, um, that's when the FDA has to have these rules finalized. So, yeah, as I said, we are, again, in the process of analyzing the language that the FDA has released and trying to figure out um, what of our first comments they took into consideration, what they didn't, and how we're going to respond to what, what they've done. So, Brian, can you give examples of a couple of the, the issues, what they, what they look like on the ground from, from the farmer's perspective and why they're so worrisome? Well, I, I mean, I, I could respond to that based on the original proposals, um, and, and some of these have been, have been improved since then. But, for instance, uh, farmers commonly use manure in farming. That, that's a practice that's gone on for several thousand years. And, uh, and it's not really clear uh, the role in which manure plays in terms of creating risk in the systems. Uh, sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's not. But the, the rules were just set very uh, sort of boldly that, that um, if manure was applied to a field, that uh, farmers were not to uh, uh, take a crop, harvest a crop from that field for nine months. And in many cases, particularly um, in the northern part of the country, um, in, in here in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, that nine months is the entire growing season, so uh, you really would have to be applying the manure one year and not harvesting anything until the next year in, in, in many respects. And, 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 you know, that might be logical to some people, but, you know, for a farmer to take a field out of uh, production, for that length of time, uh, has a huge economic impact on them. But even even more, uh, sort of generally speaking, just just the amount of paperwork, and if you're talking about it, water quality, the amount of testing that has to be done. So routine paperwork and expense that that a farmer needs to keep up with. Uh, it's true in any industry that when you have regulations like that, they impact the smaller uh, players. Uh, in a, in a more negative way than than those who have resources to be able to hire people to keep files up to date and and, and be uh, sort of on top of things. Um, you know, this is the first time for many farmers that they're going to see FDA inspectors on their farms, um, and they're a long way from being prepared to uh, do the testing routines and the paperwork and. And, and following rules that um, uh, are being imposed on them. So, um, you know, the, the, this really, in the end, would have been a big threat to their existence as, as farms. And so that's why we stepped in and, um, and, and why the FDA has already made significant improvements and uh, they have a little ways yet to go. And so Jim, I, 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 have to, I would... Yep. So I would just echoing what Brian says, I would say that the economic threat created by FISMA was not accidental. 
And, you know, we've seen this before. When the Federal Meat Inspection Act was passed, um, or the Pure Food Act, with the precursor of the Federal Meat Inspection Act, you know, at the turn of the century, what got it passed was industry support, ultimately. And you see the same thing with FISMA. Um, as Margo pointed out, you know, the, the produce, big industrialized produce, industry got behind FISMA in large part because it ensconced into law the kind of processes that they had already invested in putting in place. And, you know, big the, the industrialized agriculture industry is really threatened by the growth of local and regional agriculture, which is is really caught the public's attention and is starting to take over market share. So if they could get a big law passed that made it much more expensive, you know, for regional and local agriculture to be economically successful, that's totally to their advantage, and I would argue that that was a big part of the strategic move behind, you know, the produce industry support for FISMA. I, I would agree with that, and it's interesting to note that actually there were some sections of the proposed rules that were so difficult even for larger farms that we ended up working with them uh, to get a lot of the changes, and and uh, particularly with water uh, testing, and, and there's uh, a ways yet to go there. Uh, but we found that we ended up finding out that farms have more in common than we might have thought before uh, through this process. But, you know, the bigger point here needs to be made that it's not really, in the end, food safety is not a function of big or small. It's really a function of risk. And and so what what our farmers are concerned about is is the fact that they've been working for decades to develop a system of providing food for their local communities and even the region of the country in which they they uh, live, that reduces risk by reducing handling, reducing uh, transportation, storage, uh, additives, and all the things that put risk into the food system. Um, so we had worked for decades, really, to reduce that risk because we really truly cared about the quality of the food that consumers are getting, and then suddenly you're faced with the possibility of regulations that could destroy that work and and take us to a place where the uh, advantage swings over to the other side of of uh, promoting systems that are, are highly bureaucratic and depend on distance and ultimately depend on the anonymity of the food uh, for those... Right. Uh, for those farms and businesses to um, to uh, survive and and uh, prevail, really. So what I'm hearing there from you is that not just that um, it's not just the issues are not just that these are burdensome requirements for small businesses, but in fact, um, the they don't necessarily make sense from a safety perspective. So we're not necessarily worrying. We're not weighing appropriately burden and risk management. From your perspective, yes. In, in, in fact, in some ways, we've thrown risk assessment out the window and decided, well, everything's dangerous, and so we need to apply these rules everywhere. But in fact, uh, in, in a very uh, important and inherent way, uh, the sustainable and organic food movement has, for years, taken into account this concept of risk and tried to reduce it any way we could. So I'm interested to talk about. To to step back, I guess, and um, from my perspective, food safety has been something that hasn't necessarily intersected so much with broader food policy issues 
in the past. It's not necessarily something that quote-unquote food movement people have focused on in terms of system reform and issues around sustainable agriculture and healthy food access. But I would say that it seems to have changed as there's been more and more convergence around food safety as an important either leverage point uh, into changing food policy issues or a symptom of what's wrong with our system. And, Margo, I'm interested to get your perspective and potentially everyone's perspective on your thoughts about how food safety fits into the broader food policy conversation. Yeah, so I I think it it turns out to be pretty important. And and one way this actually follows from what Brian was saying about risk, which is that the Food Safety Modernization Act treats risk as though it comes equally from every point in the process. And um, the manure example that Brian gave is a good one. Another example is is wildlife. There have been a, a few outbreaks that have been associated with um, the presence of wildlife in the farm system, and and so the approach of FISMA has been to try to exclude wildlife. And there's actually not that much scientific support to suggest that wildlife creates a high probability of risk, so it creates a a possibility and not a probability. And I think across the board, FISMA identifies a number of possibilities for risk and treats them all equally. Uh, And... One sort of general example of this, and this fits fits back into your question about how does this relate to food system issues more generally, is um, focusing on the farm at all. So um, you you might say that, you know, E. coli can enter the food stream on the farm, but it doesn't really become a problem until it gets transferred on some a couple of lettuce leaves to a centralizing facility where it's put into a giant spinner with lettuce from a hundred other farms and that little bit of E. coli spreads and grows and suddenly something that in a, a regional food system might have gotten a handful of people sick or made nobody sick is suddenly making people sick in 30 states. So this is this falls from Brian's point that there's transparency and the traceability are really critical issues. And, and this is a kind of question that we're seeing in all sorts of areas of the food system. Do you know where your food comes from? Do you know what your farmer's practices are, whether it's in regards to food safety or environmental contamination or labor? Um, and all of those things are just so much more difficult to see when the food chain is so much longer. And the, I think a critical question for FISMA is, is it really getting at the things that are generating high levels of risk, or is it just a visible reaction to consumer fear about food safety? I mean, one of the concerns that, you know, when you're in the supermarket, you can't tell what's safe or not. And so some of the measures that are in FISMA make it make it look like, you know, there's a strong response to comfort people, but whether they're getting at the real underlying problems is a different question. I think that, you know, as a, as a mom and a shopper, I, when you talk about, when you think about E. coli and spinach or you hear about, you were talking about how the disease can spread and from a risk management regulatory perspective, you can see why, obviously, we want to be proactive about containing food safety issues. But at the same time, as a shopper and a parent, I think the idea that you can buy spinach at your farmer's market or wherever and be at this kind of risk is really and what I think uh, translates to some of the alarmist kind of conversation that you sometimes see around food safety issues. 
but I wanted, mm-hmm. I think that partially comes from that food safety issues don't, as you talked about, Margo, it doesn't always feel so consumer-facing and that there isn't that much consumers can necessarily do to protect themselves from contamination, or as a consumer, it can feel quite arbitrary. Is that something that you agree with? And uh, I guess, you know, as we move to closing, are there, are there things that you would say consumers can do? Dennis, what's your perspective on that? Well, I think Margot makes excellent points, and, and there are points I entirely agree with. I mean, I, I can tell you one story that I think perfectly sums up what is can be absurd about, about FISMA is that, as Brian pointed out, there's these regulations that attempted to prevent the spreading of manure, you know, because this comes from the idea of, oh, E. coli comes from manure, therefore manure is bad. Yet under FISMA, right now I'm representing a bunch of clients that were infected with E. coli 015787 from contaminated romaine grown in the Salinas Valley, where it was grown in a pretty industrialized operation where no one's really watching it, is less than a mile from a CAFO, concentrated animal feeding operation. So you can grow romaine lettuce under FISMA in super close proximity to where they have, you know, hundreds of head of cattle being fed in close proximity and having manure being aerosolized and wafting, you know, over fields. That is not eliminated by FISMA. So I think that's a good example of the disconnect between, you know, um, being worrying about wild animals wandering into a field versus still allowing, you know, feeding operations to be in proximity. Exactly, and, and uh, there are so many examples of where we've actually uh, increased risk to a point where um, you would have to have regulation to diminish it, and, and, and FISMA is not necessarily doing much to reduce that kind of risk-taking. So, you know, consumers need to understand that to reduce risk, they just need to reduce the number of times that it's been the food has been handled and the distance it's traveling and the length of time that it's in storage. Uh, all of the things along the way that that uh, introduce risk into the system, if they can reduce that by knowing where their food comes from, uh, getting it from sources that they trust, uh, it's not that there will be no risk at all because all food has some risk associated with it, but they can reduce risk uh, to the greatest degree possible that way. I think that's a really important point. There's, there's no amount of regulation that's going to get us to a zero-risk system. There's, just, there are, there's potential for improvement, and to achieve that improvement, I think that that's going to require some real structural changes in the way that our food system operates today. But, that's right. But there will never be zero-risk. And we have to make sure that we don't lose the gains that we've made, uh, yeah. even, bo- even before there was a move in Congress or the FDA to deal with these problems. And one thing I just want to jump in quickly to say is that uh, one of the consequences that I think you know, our worst-case scenario is that in pursuit of a completely 100% you know, safe food supply that we've just saying isn't possible and maybe one of the goals of this law is that if the producers who are supporting local and regional agriculture are, are not able to, you know, comply with the rules or that we have these unattended um, sort of consequences from the burden of the regulation that we're going to be losing the producers who are growing the fruits and vegetables that we really want people to be eating in order to be healthy. And so, you know, the, the public health um, impact in terms of our, our actual health as consumers is also at risk if we're, you know, eating less fruits and vegetables and moving to more processed food. Like, that also is not a great thing. And I think 
back to your earlier question about why this can be, um, this food safety issue is something for the broader food system movement to consider is that piece as well. Not to mention the potential economic impact in, in rural communities that are dependent on um, local food systems for their livelihoods. So um, I think that I have to say I feel maybe a little bit better about food safety issues than I did before, but it's also, you know, hearing a lot about some of the um, some of the perversities, I guess, of, of how we've approached this issue from a regulatory perspective is also somewhat daunting. But I think hearing from you all about the idea of shortened supply chains being really integral to managing food safety and that consumers do have a role to play in that is, is very helpful and somewhat comforting. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, we're out of time and we're going to have to leave it there. So I want to thank all of you for sharing your incredible insights into both the process and the potential implications of the Food Safety Modernization Act and more broadly food safety issues in our country today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and that's going to be us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. The show is available online at the Heritage Radio Network website or on iTunes and Stitcher. And I am Kim Kessler. I'm your host, and thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.